Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The nature of it is that, you know, people like to hire people who look like them and people like to make programs about people who kind of sound sound like them. That has always been the case, which meant that I never really felt that I could make a leap. Mm. So if there isn't a door there, you have to build a door <laughs> and then open it yourself. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to producer, presenter and founder of Kid Rated, Simon London. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they use to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Simon is what is known as a broadcast all-rounder. He started off his television career at the Daily Mirror as the paper's youngest ever television critic. He then went on to join Channel Live TV as a presenter, fronting their daily show Live with London as well as The Breakfast Show alongside Claudia Winkleman. Simon has produced over 2,000 hours of TV shows, including Stephen K. Amos Show, Sam Delaney's News Thing, QI, and not forgetting the BAFTA award-winning So Graham Norton. He was also the roving reporter on the Saturday Night National Lottery Show. Simon has also held numerous television exec roles at Fremantle, RDF, and at the BBC where he was creative head of comedy and head of Comedy North. More recently, he was head of original programming and content for Africa Media Works Yanga TV and has given talks to the likes of Google, YouTube, and Guardian panels about content creation. Oh, and then of course, finally... He is the co-founder of Kid Rated, a website where children review family days out and attractions. So needless to say, he's done a lot and there was a lot for us to get through. I've always been a big fan of Simon. As we talk about, I really like his approach to social media. He just has fun with the content creation, uh, but whilst also making a point, which is a very delicate balance. Anyway, as I was saying, this was a lovely meandering conversation between Simon and I. I think you will find it fascinating, particularly when Simon touches upon his experiences of working at the BBC and the frustrations he had whilst there and the reasons why he left and, and why he moved away from working in television in general. Uh, anyway, I hope you're all doing well. Do you know, it's really nice. Uh, not to have to say in these um, unprecedented times that's just sort of died down that 
that phrase that the media like to use all the time and uh, Boris Johnson. I just wanted to wish you well in these unprecedented times. Everything is an unprecedented time though, isn't it? Because it's a time that hasn't existed before a previous time. So you could say that every day of our life is really an unprecedented time. Like right now, me talking about unprecedented times is an unprecedented time. Well, man, how many spliffs you smoked today, Steve? Not, not one, actually. It's a great shame. Great shame. I haven't smoked any for quite a while, actually. I haven't smoked any of the weed. If you haven't done already, it'd be great if you could subscribe to Balancing Acts and share, share the love. And if you're liking these conversations, if you're finding them inspiring in, in any shape or form then please do rate and review the podcast on apple that would be very lovely of you anyway without further ado over to simon so um uh, just before i pressed record we were just saying how it seemed it's been a long time since we've seen each other face to face however you were about to say and then I immediately very rudely and abruptly said don't say anything because I know whatever's going to come out your mouth is going to be gold wait till the press record uh, I was There's a lot of pressure on you now I was about to say that because I listen to the podcast I feel that I um that I've, I sort of see you and speak to you all the time <laughs> added, to that, added to that I get a newsletter from you as well so <laughs> so I leave you alone I leave you alone yeah, I, which one was I listening to? I was listening to a podcast. Um, it could have been the Sean Pye one, where oh, yeah. you say, um, uh, you know, I'll send you an email, let you know what I'm doing. And then you suddenly go, I mean, it will be about this. It's not me just sending you a blog about what I'm doing, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. But well, yeah, I do feel... I do feel that sort of uh, we've we've spoken or we've been around and we've been speaking to one another quite a lot, or at least I've been listening to you quite a lot. Anyway, but that's, don't you think that's the illusion of social media, isn't it? Because I, I always, you know, we've got a little bit of a social media bromance going on. We send each yeah. other a lot of LOL emojis and so forth, yes. and so it does feel like there's there's this ongoing connection there, which I think is really, which I think is really really nice. My mum died earlier this year in March. I'm sorry and to hear somebody, that. Somebody, oh. It's, uh, thank you. I never know what to say about. No, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. I never know what to say. I know. Ignored it or just let you carry on. Yeah. I, I felt compelled to say it because we, you know, we've got this social media thing. I thought it'd be indeed, rude. If I didn't. Indeed. Um, what uh, for the purposes of those who are maybe listening, what Steve did there was he just held up a uh, an emoji face with a tear and then turned it around and it had a smile on it. So uh, <laughs> no. So um, and somebody said to me. Oh God, it must have been really difficult because obviously just coming out of lockdown and things like that. Yeah. And I hadn't noticed. I'd spoken to uh, I'd spoken to my parents so much on Zoom that I'd completely forgotten that I hadn't really I hadn't seen them for six months. Oh, wow, um, yeah. But and I think that's you know everybody kind of knocks the well they knock social media more than kind of video <laughs> conferencing. But there is something that you can if you are talking to people online regularly, it does feel as though you um that, that you're you see in touch. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, completely. In a way that you wouldn't be perhaps but before. I don't really do Facebook, um, because Facebook sort of is just feels too big. But I remember specifically when you decided to I think you did a post about it and you said I'm off Facebook now. If you want to find me, I'm where all the cool kids are on Instagram. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which was a good move. Yeah, because I think um in, in Instagram there's I think 
I've got something ridiculously stupid, like 1,500 followers, but actually there's only 200 people who I converse with on a regular basis. Yeah, and if yeah. I pick up the phone to any of them or if I send them a message and say, oh, can I talk to you about something? It comes back straight away and we'll always start off with, oh, you've been doing this or you've been doing that and and it feels like we're in touch. So, yeah, I like the I like the intimacy of a smaller platform, let's say. No, I get that. I, I'm smiling to myself because uh, you text me out the blue. I think it was in the latest lockdown. Was it the last lockdown we had where you yeah. just text me something, hashtag banter? <laughs> tickled me straight away. We have to talk about banter. Do we, do we talk about banter We now? can talk about it. Yeah, yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah. Well, I can't remember even how it came to your attention. I don't remember what um, happened. So I think that um, when I was working at the BBC, so at the BBC, I'd gone back to the BBC in 2008 um, yeah. as kind of just a jobbing producer and the way that the BBC is set up is uh, there was a there was a comedy department there where they had kind of about sixty percent of the people were on staff and forty percent of the people kind of jobbing producers, freelancers on contract. And I went in as a jobbing producer and yeah. then ended up on staff. And the great thing about being on staff is that if they offer you anything and you don't want to do it, you just say, no, I don't want to do it. And they can't do anything because um, you're on staff. And I'm saying that in a um, in a sarcastic way. I think that's okay. sort of the worst thing about that was one of the worst things about the BBC. Just people kind of saying, no, I don't want to make that show. And then going off to Westfield for the day. Whereas when you go wow. in as a job. Yeah, amazing. I Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. So um, I had gone in as a jobbing producer and um, I was just keen to make anything that they put my way or develop anything they put my way. Pilots, you know, sitcoms. I, I produced a two series of sitcom that sort of everybody else had turned down. They didn't want to do it because they um, felt it wasn't it, it wasn't good enough or beneath them or whatever. But I just wanted to learn and, you know, you're not going to get any any air miles unless you go and make some stuff. What, was um, that? what sitcom was that? It was Coming of Age. Okay. Coming of age and hey, it was puerile and it was ridiculous and and um, you know tasteless in many ways. However, what's not to like? I mean, however, there's a lot of there were a lot of good people, a lot of nice people who, yeah. who made that show, and I made lots of good friends on that show, and I learned a lot making making that show because um, I'd never made a sitcom before. Okay. But I sort of progressed from there to. Um, being on staff and being creative head of uh, comedy and that meant trying to sort of uh, get other people's projects away and I think you and who did you make that sketch with your there's a whole crew of us but it was in that sketch was uh, myself and Joe Dives that's it Joe Dives um I think you'd sent me that sketch you'd sent me some stuff to have a look at oh okay sent me some stuff to have a look at and I just I just absolutely, I absolutely loved that sketch of yours. So for the, for the tape, uh, pretending I'm in AC12, yeah. um, <laughs> Steve and Joe made a sketch where Steve is basically in love with Joe, mm. but every time his, the truth. his repressed love tries to show itself, it's always in an inappropriate moment and Joe sort of turns around to him and says, what are you doing? So it's kind of a fruit machine, first of all, and then it escalates and it's in a toilet. <laughs> Steve is admiring <laughs> Joe's appendage. And every time Joe goes, what, what's going on? Steve has to go, banter, mate. It's just banter and pretends that it's just banter. 
I love that so much. And um, kind of the, the room that you can see me in now is my sort of man cave. Uh, this room has looked like okay. this ever since I was single. And then I had it completely transposed when I got married into our marital home. I just Great. recreated it. Um, and I sit in here with... Um, uh, male friends of mine and we laugh and drink and uh, all the rest of it and we show one another sketches and we listen to songs and banter is always shown banter is one of those that is is always shown so whenever oh, i hear wow. the word banter i think of you lovingly and um and i, and I send you the word so yeah banter banter it's funny i think that that word is is has sort of got different connotations over the years yes like it's very much associated with um you know, toxic masculinity. I think. Yes. I mean, and there was still, I think I was, that was, there was a backdrop of that to that sketch that there was, you know, I was trying to sort of indicate that that was part of that whole uh, vibe. But I think, yeah, it's, it's in some, in some, in some circles, it's almost like, oh, what did you just say? You can't use that word. Yeah. It's, <laughs> a really, it's a really clever sketch because of that. And it's interesting, actually, this morning, um, uh, a woman has put on, uh, Twitter about Boris Johnson's speech at the party conference that he's just done. And she's put loads of words under saying uplifting, uplifting, wonderful, um, inspiring, blah, blah, blah. So jokingly, I quote tweeted her and said, uh, he's not going to not shag you. And um, her and her followers have got really, really angry about it. So they've put <laughs> loads of stuff underneath. And one of the things she's written, you'll be pleased to hear is, You've got shit banter, mate. That's what you're uh, to which I've put underneath, thank you, Virginia Woolf. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, on Love Island, um, I'm, I'm in a house where Love Island is on the TV and I'm kind of forced to get in, either get involved or be ostracised. And some of the girls sometimes say to one another, so sorry, not girls, women, some of the women say to one another when they're talking, you know, I mean, he should like me. I mean, I've got good banter and I've got this. And I mean, it's, there's, they've kind of adopted that word in a yeah. in a nice way. And I know what that I know what that means. I remember sort of saying to my son the other day, "Do you think you've got good banter?" And he's like, "Yeah, no, I've got, I've got, I've got good banter." You mean you've got good banter, haven't you? It's it's an I I don't I don't mind the word. I like the word. I think it's a, it's it's a catch-all for for lots of stuff yeah i just find it funny when you're in certain situations and someone says something and then it's sort of like an underlying dig they, they've, they've they've been holding something against you for a long time and they haven't yes. they haven't expressed it they haven't expressed their you know whatever it is that they've they're they're angry about and then after a few pints it might come out and <laughs> then and then you respond to it it's like hold on have i done something to offend you it's like oh what no no mate it's just banter <laughs> Exactly, and and that's exactly the way that you use it. In that, so so every time you get close to the truth, you yeah. dismiss it as banter. And the more kind of obsessed and the more inappropriate you get, the more banter is used to um, to excuse your behaviour. And yeah, it's, it's brilliant. I don't know whether you've seen on the north. Is it the north? No, I think it's the M4 that comes into London. Yeah. Um, somebody has written on a bridge over there in massive letters, banter, and it feels <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's brilliant because they've gone up there and what they could have done is they could have tried to put up a joke there. Yeah. They yeah. could have tried to have written something, but they basically, it, they basically may have just, they basically could have just written on the bridge, punchline, 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of, there you go. So they've written banter, and it's for us to interpret it in whatever way we see fit. And I think it's the sort cool. of thing you look at and you feel proud to be British. Yes. Yes. It's quintessentially yeah. British, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I know everybody kind of sort of talks about sort of British values and this and that and blah, blah, blah. Banter is banter and good banter and bants is part of, um, is part of, uh, I think it should be sort of taught in school as British, British values. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Forget talking, you know, teaching emotional intelligence and how to manage your finances. It's really <laughs> hard to conduct good banter. I would like all those things on the curriculum and I would like them to take off long division, oh. uh, uh, matrices. Algebra. Uh, yeah. Uh, and they replace it with those things that you said, including, including banter. I think they're uh, moving that way, aren't they? I think, I don't know about the, the, the national curriculum, but I think emotional intelligence and uh, even incorporate mindfulness is starting to become more of a common occurrence in some schools. Yeah, I, I was um, asked to uh, take uh, to participate in sort of a Good Morning Britain call um, earlier this year, where they wanted to talk about um, uh, white privilege. That was it. So they had a teacher on who the, the story was that white privilege was going to be no that um, white pupils, young white kids, were falling behind, and partly this was due to. Uh, being t- told about things like white privilege and everything else. It was a real non-story. I took the time out to read the report that this had been in, and it was actually sort of just a paragraph, really, that had then been picked up kind of by the right-wing media as white privilege is making kids fail at school. But I was asked to be on this um, uh, this Good Morning Britain uh, report, and they started off kind of knocking this idea of privilege. And I said... Look, I think that the the term white privilege it is divisive, but you kind of have to understand the term privilege as as men. I can't believe I said this to Susanna Reid. I said, as men, we're able to walk through the park, and if it's hot on a sunny day, we can just whip our t shirts off and that and just walk through topless. Women can't do that because because of the the atmosphere that we're in. They should be able to, but privilege denotes that we can't do that. If we're going out and if we're going on the tube as able-bodied people, we don't have to spend ages trying to work out where the lifts are, where the ramps are, whether the station that we're going to. Um, so it's so really privilege is just about something that the majority never have to think about, and yeah. shouldn't kind of make this into a. Um, we shouldn't turn this into a, a sort of toxic word. We should try and embrace and understand it. And I said. In schools, actually, if we were teaching about the privilege that young people have, you know, you know, in terms of being able-bodied or in terms of being men or in terms of colour or religion or whatever, it would be so much better. And I would applaud it. I think that that is really useful and it helps people be, as you say, emotionally intelligent and kind of help them be empathetic. Mm. Um and I thought I'd done really well there. And then somebody just <laughs> afterwards, I came off and looked on Twitter and it was like, he should shut, he should shut oh, really? up. What's he going on about? And blah, blah, blah. And like, oh, another woke lefty trying to sort of go on. So you kind of feel we've got a long way to go on something like that. But if you and I get a chance to change the curriculum, Steve, it will definitely be for the better. Yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, Banter FC, I think, um, that should be <laughs> the name of every school. Uh, football team <laughs> just to start off with um but i 
I heard you talk about not the same thing, but I've heard you talk about sort of knife crime as well. And yeah, well, first of all, I think you know when you when you give a talk or, or anything like that, and you're you're sort of articulating certain points of views, and then you which which can be divisive, and then you get certain feedback like that on social media. Surely that's a good indicator that you're on the right track. You know, if you're getting people pushed back like that, because if it's just vanilla, what yes. what good is that going to do? I guess the thing is, is that what what you have to understand. What there are forums in which you can change people's minds. You can have a discussion, and if you're up for it, you can change people's minds. Social media is not that forum. <laughs> people come in with their um, people come in with their sort of what's it called predisposed i guess they they they've got their argument they know what they what they want and they're just basically on the platform to defend that and once that penny drops that you're not on social media to change people's minds then you know you have a much better time of it um and i right. think that did you have a penny drop moment then because you're i cuz i don't know if your content has always been the same but i'm uh in awe of it in terms of you do seem to get across certain points, uh, but in a very lighthearted way. You know, you have opinions, but it's just it's just fucking funny. Like I, I'm always laughing at your your content. Uh, thank you. I kind of had this um I think I had this Damascene moment um that started about ten years ago where as a kid I'd I'd always um you know, I, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but as a kid, yeah. I had I took massive umbrage at Lenny Henry on Tiswas, kind of going around going, okay, bread and condensed milk and like doing all these voices because that's what people did to me at school. So right. him doing that, I kind of you, you went to boarding school, didn't you? I went to boarding school. I went to yeah. comp, and then I went to boarding school afterwards. Yeah. Um, but both at the comp and at boarding school, kind of both that. That was the same. And also you kind of walk down the street in sort of the early 80s or whatever, and people would shout that at you. And then um, all of a sudden, Lenny kind of, if you want to use that phrase, got woke. And he was very much talking about, um, you know, racism and uh, really kind of one of the early advocates about um, how it affected him. And I was sort of apoplectic. I was like, oh, it's because of you. I've had such a bad time and everything else. And then kind of I hit 40 and I completely, I've done a Lenny Henry, I completely understood what it, what it was all about. I, I think it's because you have, you have kids and I've got a son going to the cinema one day and looking at something to see and seeing all the posters and there, weren't, there wasn't anybody who looked like him. Right. And I kind of, that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is, gosh, you know, I don't want, uh, you know, it's not down to me to be the role model. I'm an idiot. You know, he, he needs to have some people that he can look up to and and do that. So that was sort of the start of just just noticing stuff a, a bit more. And I'd moved out of TV at that time, um, uh, kind of, yeah, sort of around about 2012. I'd moved out of TV and I was doing um, my own my own project. And I think that, so for some people who knew me working in TV, I've suddenly come back and I seem to be a bit more political and everything else. Uh, but I think that was just really the environment that I was in. I mean, I did sort of some bonkers things. I, I once grabbed a copy of Shortlist and I was flicking through it and there wasn't a black face in there. And I happened to know one of the guys who 
founded it. Really lovely guy called Phil Hilton. So I, I just sent him an email going, I, I love this. I bring it home all the time, but like there's nobody in it that my my son can look up to. And he wrote something really nice back to me and said, explained, yeah, they were supposed to have somebody, but the interview fell through. But thanks for bringing this to my attention. And and I think because Phil had been so good about it, I started doing it a bit more. If I saw something like that, I would mention it. And I kind of just felt it was really important for for my son to kind of see some sort of representation because I had grown up and not seen that. And I think it had def- the way that it had defined me in sort of different ways, some of them good, some of them bad. And I wanted to kind of stamp out what I perceived to be the bad stuff um, for him so that he could, you know, it's important that he had an easier ride of it, if you if you like. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Was that part of the reason, but what you've just touched upon, was that part of the reason why you left the TV industry? Did you, did you have, did you sort of find there were certain frustrations there in that respect? Um, I left the TV industry. I kind of was sort of, um, uh, I had been at the BBC and I had been in the comedy department and I had a really tough, I had a really tough time there. And for lots of for lots of reasons that I didn't understand at the time, but understand much better much better now. The way that the I don't want to slag off the BBC because I love the BBC and I've worked there twice and it's kind of a great institution and everything else. But it's also an institution which mm. has all the kind of problems of a lot of <laughs> a lot of badly run institutions in, yeah. in Britain, and I think that. Um, the the difficulty was um that all of a sudden my face didn't fit there and so i was sort of to be the way that i feel about it or felt about it i was kind of pushed out um and because of that and because of sort of everything that i had worked on up until then i sort of thought I don't want to do TV anymore. I want to have a break from this and I want to do something else. And that's when I kind of went off and sort of uh, did a startup. But I found it really, really difficult. And only looking back, I realised just how hard it was working in that environment. I'd worked with a lot of good young writers, um, people coming to me, bringing me projects and scripts, and they just were never going to get anything away because they weren't the right people. I'd work with well, when you say the right people define what you mean by that um they um they hadn't they weren't the right people they weren't the, the in crowd faces yeah yeah they yeah. weren't the right faces yeah and kind of I'd been quite naive I'd been there and I was quite naive in what I could do and what I could help and what I could work on and actually you know, it wasn't gonna. It wasn't gonna happen. I saw people who were given projects that I had been promised just because their dads had worked in the department. I saw people who um, came in and were given scripts. You know, w- working hard with writers, developing scripts, and kind of getting them ready to pitch. And I came in and saw people who because they were famous, just came in and said, oh, I've got an idea to do this. And then they were just given a commission and there weren't any script and there weren't any scripts. Yeah, yeah. Um famously, famously, there's uh well for me famously, I remember 
that we were told not to um, work on any more school projects. You know, if a writer came in and they had a project set in a school, then it wasn't to be developed because there were too many school projects. There were some girls, there was bad education, there's Waterloo Road. At one time, the, the BBC had a load of school projects. And then sort of a star came in and said he wanted to do a project set in a school and it was immediately commissioned and it was immediately commissioned. And if you're working in that environment, that backdrop, you're suddenly realize you're never going to get anything away. You're not going to, if you'd have come in, I would have had to say to you, Steve, let's go to the pub. I don't know how to say this, but you're never going to get anything away. Yeah. You know, it's not the only way you're going to get this away is if you go and kind of find a star or if you suddenly go to Tuscany and meet a commissioner or a head of channel on holiday, but you're not going to get some stuff away. And um, Was it hard to leave? Well, I kind of got, I, I'm probably still under an end. Yeah, I, I had to leave. I was asked to leave and then I um, challenged that and um, I could have stayed, but I left anyway. Yeah. So it was mainly, you know, um, you're not getting enough stuff away. But you couldn't get stuff away because the way that it was set up, I believe, was unless you had unless you had that ecosystem around you, you couldn't get stuff away. It was really difficult. Let me let me try and be more precise. Let me give you give you some examples. So I remember the there was a do you remember that Hooligans Island Bottom was going to come back? Yes. I don't know whether you remember. This is worth Googling. Yeah. It is really worth Googling. Though up in Edinburgh, it was announced with massive fanfare by uh, BBC's con- BBC Two controller that Bottom would be returning to yeah. BBC Two. And um, Aid Edmondson and Rick Mail had decided that they were going to come back and do it. Yeah. And then if you Google Bottom cancelled, <laughs> I think it's less than three months later, they say um, Aid Edmondson and Rick Mail have decided not to do it. And there was a story that they kind of got in a room and they couldn't and they couldn't write it yeah, and, and everything else. Now, on the surface, that's a story that, you, you know, you, you think of that as a story that is just kind of a non-story in a way. But if you're working in that environment, you realise that they've they've been able to go in and say, oh, we want to do bottom again. And everyone's gone, yeah, go off and do it. But there aren't any scripts. Right, yeah. Whereas everybody else has to go in with a good script, a decent script. And in fact, that's how it should be. You should be able to look at the scripts and go, these are great, let's make that show. So if you're if if you're trying and there are slots at the BBC that you have to try and fill or there were. Um, so if you have been working to put something into that slot and it suddenly goes with a fanfare, that BBC two slot that you've been trying to develop in has suddenly gone. And then you find out that there were no scripts or anything else. Or that's a really that's a really tough way in which to work and to try and come up with try and come up with something. Yeah. And, you know, another example, again, if you Google, um, uh, it is really interesting piece in The Guardian. In 2014, Kevin Ligo, who's a, over at ITV, um, put in a, a a script that he put in under a, a, another name, I think Ruby Solomon. And it was a first-time writer, unknown writer, and he put it in. And The Guardian, <laughs> the line that always sticks in my heart is in The Guardian, it said... Um, the channel controller and the head of commissioning howled with laughter when they found out that the script was from Kevin and they commissioned it and it was a one-off pilot for a detective series. I mean, 
an unknown writer getting a BBC One pilot like that, and it's just kind of written as though this is the sort of thing that happens. That never happens. That would never happen. And you read the article and there's no kind of... um, uh, there's there's no criticism of that process or anything at all. It's just, you know, this guy wrote something and handed it in and then it was commissioned and made into a BBC One pilot. For any writer, if you've worked with any writer, a writer would be pulling their hair out going, how the, how the hell does that, how the hell does that happen? So yeah. it was a really difficult environment to work in to try and get stuff away. Um, and it made me think that there's something to be said for just being a producer for hire and going mm. around and and doing that. But of course, producers for hire are basically in the gig economy. We're delivery we're delivery riders. You know, you're if there's a job there, you you get that job, but there's no real pensions or no real support network. You just have to you you're freelancing. A lot of people have done that for 20, 25 years, just going from job to job or gig to gig, as it were. Um so yeah, I I kind of fell in, fell out of love with the uh, with the process with um, TV, and I, there are just so many great people that I met and worked with in terms of writers, performers, um, people behind the camera, and then there's such a small it appears it seemed to me such a small clique of people who could get stuff made or away, and. You know, if you weren't in that upper echelon, you know, you were basically, you're basically, it's kind of a bit like, you know, you're like Sisyphus pushing a rock up, up the hill only for it to roll down the other side and to keep on doing it, if you see. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. OK, back to the chat. Do you think uh, from your observations that that still seems to be the case in the industry or do you think there's been significant changes? Um, I think it's still hard. I listened to your to the episode with Sean Pye, um, who I was always in awe of. I was uh, I, Sean Pye. He talks about going into writer's room. He he used to, uh, I used to see him in writer's room with uh, Fraser and Fraser Steele and uh, the late, great Jim Pullen. And I was always kind of in, in awe of those guys. And Sean says, you know, that he still, even somebody with the success that he has, he puts in stuff. And did he say that he'd forgotten, he'd got a rejection. It had been so long, he'd forgotten that he'd handed it <laughs> yeah, yeah, in. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it is. It is still. Dif- it is still difficult. Um, from what I understand, I'm. I'm still not. I'm not doing TV uh, at the moment. But I think it's. Um, I, I think it is still. I think it is still quite hard. But yeah. I do think that there is a group of people who will always, always work, and that is not based upon um, how good they are. And their body, yeah, that's not based upon their experience and their body of work. They just will be some people who will always work in that medium. The Illuminati. It exists. It's sort of, yeah, in, in its, um, 
you know, you have to kind of think about it in terms of if you there's so much there's so much involved, there's yeah. so much risk involved in trying to get something away. Well, we'll come back to risk. There's so much work involved in trying to get something away that you will go to somebody who has a track record of delivering. That's yes. Yeah, because because channels are risk adverse, right? Precisely. But then you kind of hear Sean saying, of all the people who should be getting stuff away regularly, you'd think Sean would because of he's got that track record. So that doesn't always bear fruit. Then there's kind of the experience thing. You want to have people who are experienced. And a lot of people, a lot of my peers who came through... So um, pair of hands, mate. David Seaman, banter. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You want that safe pair of hands. So you want, um, so a lot of people who came through my, my route, which is comedy entertainment. So panel shows, kind of house party or TFI Friday, you know, it's comedy, but it's not scripted. So yeah, broken, broken comedy or unscripted comedy, whatever you like. The nature of those shows is you make a lot of them. So if you think of how many episodes of Have I Got News For You or how many episodes of Graham Norton or, or whatever you make, a you make a lot of shows. So it can be quite galling. I reckon that I've probably made, if I sat down and tried to work it out, I reckon I've made over 2000 individual, individual shows. Wow. And I think that I would have probably have made just under a thousand when I went to the BBC. However, when the shows were being handed out or when I was sort of given projects to look after, uh, I was passed over a lot for people who had made four shows right. or three shows um, because of their relationships within, within the BBC. And that's always a, that's always a tough thing to, that's always a, that's always quite tough. And after a while you will get quite bitter. Do I sound bitter? Yeah. Probably. But you get burnt but, out. But, I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. I oh, so there's only so much rejection a man can take. This yeah, is you will kind experience. of go. You will kind of go. I don't know what else. I don't know what else I I can do because I can't really get any more experience yeah. at this level. I can't really. Makes sense. So so that becomes that becomes quite difficult. Did you yeah. um, um go on? So sorry, no, go on. I was going to say, did you find it refreshing once you stepped once you started kid rated? Did you find the, yeah. the the sort of speed that the the startup world moves uh, in comparison to TV quite refreshing? So, um, so the interesting thing once I left the BBC, there was a chance to go and work. Um, there was a chance to go and work somewhere else, but I had always had this idea about um, doing uh, the, doing this every time we went on a holiday. Um, I would always make a little video with my son uh, that I would send his grandparents who put it on YouTube. And we did that one year and it went, uh, we did it one year of a hotel, which we went back to. And when we got to that hotel, kids came running up to my son going, we saw you on YouTube and parents went, we booked this hotel because we saw your son's review of it. And that I thought for a, a while that would be a really good idea to do. Yeah. And I managed to distill it down. Originally, I thought, oh, you just review hotels and get sent loads of freebies. <laughs> no, actually, what you should do is you should review days out and attractions in cities and yeah. start off with London. And um, that became the basis for Kid Rated. And I'd left the BBC with a bit of money in my pocket and I had the 
time, I guess, and bandwidth to sort of have a go at at doing this, doing something for myself. So it was it was great. I sort of it was a whole new skill. I'd only ever really I'd been a journalist before, so I knew that I could write. And obviously, from the the practical side of it, the video side of it, I was quite confident about. But I'd never made a website. I'd never done anything like branding or stuff like that. I was just completely green in that area. And so it was quite exciting to start from scratch. And the other thing is I needed more money. Um, so I had to go and pitch to investors. And actually, having worked in TV and come up with ideas, many of which didn't get away, but you know, you're used to going into a room and pitching. Mm. And that was that that was really good and it was a good idea and so I managed to raise money so I all of a sudden I was doing this thing where I'd raised money um I got a business partner a friend of mine Natalie she and I sort of went for it and uh, we just made this website where kids reviewed days out with little video films and um we did it for sort of about three years we were unable to raise a second round but the site still is still going. I still kind of pay a little bit of money to have a, somebody who helps me sort of update it and keep it going. After working in television where a project can take, on average, from idea to pilot, 18 months, from idea yeah. to series, two years, just to kind of go, oh, let's review the Tower of London. And two days later, the film was up on the website, was brilliant it was just mm. great for i mean you know me i'm kind of quite an energetic enthusiastic person i'm not good at waiting around i'm not patient yeah. and so just being able to go off and do that was was really good as it sort of started to get word of mouth because i used a lot of friends who worked in tv <laughs> to ask them to go out with their kids and film their kids doing these reviews for me good idea. i did get approached for somebody saying hey we should make this into a show and in the first year I said no because I know what TV's like it was sort of it's kids reviewing and rating stuff yeah. but if I'd have said yes I know that I've gone into the process and somebody said hey this is really good I love this idea this is a brilliant idea we're going to do it exactly the same except I think it should be cats rating stuff and <laughs> um, then I would go oh they're offering me money and I like money well, yes let's change it all to cats so yeah. I kind of <laughs> I sort of said no in that first year when I was approached then I did do a pilot with Channel 4 uh, based on the idea kind of two years later um, which didn't get commissioned which I which I didn't care about at all in a way because I sort of still had the website still had my baby and but I'm in conversations again with somebody about uh, possibly turning it into a sort of TV idea which I'm more open to now because I wouldn't be making it myself I would just sort of let them have the idea and I guess in some ways be a program associate and and not the producer of it so yeah which would be ideal yeah like almost full circle isn't it yeah definitely which is great what what was your experience like um I know for what you worked uh, you had a stint as uh, as head of original programming and content for was it Af Africa Media Works Yanga TV yes oh god that was uh, that was it was a couple of years ago wasn't it yeah, I mean, it was, ama it was amazing. And um, so I finished kind of working regularly in television, I would say, around about 2013. Yeah. I did kid rated till about 2016, 2017. And then 
it was decided in the family that it would be good if I went and got a job and that we could all eat again and maybe have some clothes and holidays. So I sort of went out to look for a job and I was lucky that I was approached. Um, I, I was approached by a friend, Phil, who uh, was a very high up in shortlist media and they owned um, shortlist magazine and stylist magazine, the freebie magazines that were given out in London and sort of, in fact, around the UK. And they wanted somebody to come in as basically a head of video yeah. and make lots of social, lots of make lots of social video. For That's their- when we worked together on uh, that flatmate sketch. That was, that was right. And yeah. so that was really, that was a really, really good um, experience because I kind of got together a team yeah, I was given I a team and got a team of about sort of 16, 17 people. And we were making, at one time, I think we were making like 35 videos a week or, wow. um, you know, we were just churning out this great social video and it was really good. It was hard. It was hard to go back into kind of that environment and be older. A lot of people, okay. I didn't realize how old I was and right. working with a lot of younger people. And I it was the sudden realization that the the world had moved on, moved on a bit and that the way that <laughs> it was, a, it was kind of a wake up call in terms of working with um, a lot of young women kind of at the forefront of that me too movement. And I had to check myself in the way that I was. I don't think I'm particularly, I don't think I'm particularly sexist, but I kind of think possibly outrageous and it was good to sort of, it was good to kind of go back into the work environment when things were changing. Uh, and I really enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed making the content. There were some difficult things about it. I think that there was, you know, looking back, there were sort of, um, there was an element of racism that I hadn't really understood before. Uh, right. And maybe that I was more attuned to okay. going back and working and sort of kind of being, many times the only black person in the room and the way that um, people kind of spoke to me and stuff like that. It was an interesting time for me working there. I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about, um, about, about the process. So that was really good. And then from that, I went and worked for, as you say, Africa media works for basically a, a Nigerian politician had decided that he would set up a TV station in England that was going to serve the Nigerian diaspora. And in doing so, the the Nigerian diaspora around the world sends something ridiculous like £60 billion back to Nigeria, to families. So I think his idea was if he could put his politicians on this station, then... Nigerians in England watching it, Nigerians in the UK watching it, um, would possibly influence their families back at home come election times to vote for that party. I think that was the underlying idea. And he pumped quite a lot of money into it. And it had its own... We had studios. We had... We were based in Chiswick Park. But also the woman who was in charge of it wanted it to kind of not just be about Nigerian politics or anything else. She wanted to have a station that had entertainment kids shows a kind of a women's ch- a women's chat show like um loose women um a variety of different shows hmm. and through my very good friend sam delaney who was the king of banter he um was 
his company was going to make some content for it. And long story short, they ended up not doing it. And I went in as head of original content and made all those shows for the channel for about 18 months. And we won an award um, uh, for best for best channel for, for the content that I'd come up with. And I really felt that it was, um, I really felt that everything that I'd worked towards through newspapers, through TV, through doing social video with shortlist made had had led to that point of making that content for the company but more than that i'd never worked with a lot of black people before yeah yeah there just aren't a lot of black people in tv yeah uh, well there weren't when i was making it i was very often the kind of the the only black person in the room and we needed to advertise for people who uh, were aware of what was going on in West Africa. So you, obviously you can't put an ad in going, we just want black people. <laughs> we just want Nigerians to come and work for this company. So it was worded very carefully. And if sort of a white person had come in who was a whiz on West African politics, we would have definitely taken them. But obviously a lot of the people who applied for it were um, West African, Ghanaian and, and Nigerian. And so I was working with a lot of young kids who didn't have a lot of TV experience, but I was able to mould into researchers, assistant producers, and finally producers. And it was just yeah. absolutely brilliant. It was just so That must good. have been so fulfilling. It was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, they had never met anybody like me because yeah. I'm adopted and I've got white parents and my wife's white and my kids mixed race. And I went to uh, boarding school when I was <laughs> 12, yeah. kind of taken out of a comprehensive and put into boarding school when I was 12. And so I'm kind of, <laughs> I think one of my friends called me uh, the day walker. I kind of have one foot in the black <laughs> world and one foot in the white world. I'm Blade. Um, and I'd never met anybody like them. And I learned so much. And again, this kind of sort of, cultural awakening that I feel that I may have had or this racial awakening that I feel I may have had was um, exacerbated or definitely speeded up by kind of working with these, working with these kids. And it was just so great as well. They were kind of like sponges and they just wanted to learn. And again, because we were making so many shows across so many different genres, you know, by the time we ended, I reckon these kids had made easily 150 shows um, but it tells you a lot about the TV landscape that when uh, it all stopped and they went off to look for jobs, all of them had a hard time getting jobs and their white colleagues who they'd worked with kind of waltzed into jobs. And a lot of them, unfortunately, didn't get jobs straight away. And when they did get jobs, they were kind of for things that were for black audiences. They were, right. you know, it was it was very, very niche, yeah. which tells you a lot about the... Um, it tells you a lot about the environment and what they're up against. Mm -hmm. What was really interesting, the, the thing that will stick with me is um, I remember David Lammy at the time criticising Stacey Dooley for doing comic relief and scooping up a little black kid and having her photo and putting it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And everybody saying, David Lammy saying, you know, enough of this white saviour complex. We've got to sort of, we've got to sort, sort of, um, you know, get get away from this. And I asked the kids that I was working with, you know, do you agree with what David Lammy's saying? What do you think about this? And they told me that 
because of the Band-Aid song that came out every Christmas, that they had felt that, you know, the line, there won't be any snow in Africa <laughs> this Christmas time, and <laughs> all the images that they were shown, that yeah. sort of, some of them kind of thought when they were going to go back and see family back in Nigeria, back in Ghana or whatever, that's what it was going to be like. And they couldn't believe they got went back and, you know, the, their uncles got two cars and air conditioning and stuff like this. And it was really interesting sort of, you know, some of the, I remember one of them said, when you're bombarded with images like that all the time and with comic relief and everything else, there is this sort of feeling that you should be grateful for for getting on. And so you go into working into that, you go into working to that environment with this sense of, I should be grateful to be here and blah, blah, blah. And that was really, of course, I've never had that. I never had that sort of sense of, I'd always, <laughs> me being so arrogant and loud and everything, you know, I'm meant to be here. And if you don't like it, screw you type thing. Yeah. But it really, that really kind of, um, that really affected me, not affected me, but it really made me think. And I have kind of tried to mentor um, a, a few of those kids. And when they're in jobs and stuff, if they're having a hard time, I've always said, you know, give me a call and see what I can do to help and things. You've always been very, very helpful. I mean, I'm just uh, your average white male, but, um, you know, you've always been very supportive of me and um, always been very thankful of that. Are you kind of happy where you're at right now in terms of, you know, I see you pop up and you're on talk radio and you're on BBC Radio London and you're obviously doing kid rated. Are you kind of at a place now where you feel, you know, you've done all, you've had all this experience and you, you touched upon earlier that you feel kind of freer to express your opinions and be a bit more divisive. And at the same time, you seem to be uh, a multi-hyphenate. Um, I always say that with a, with a US accent, because that's what they, they say. We're looking for the next multi-hyphenate. Um, <laughs> Uh, are you do you feel content where you're at right now the short answer is yes i've just landed a really really uh good job and uh that i start in a couple of weeks and i'm so excited about and that's going to be working um for snapchat oh great um, yeah and kind of looking after or their original content and their original Brilliant. commissions and I had two big interviews with the Americans and it was just really positive because they wanted somebody who was in a, at an age where they had a lot of experience under their belt, both TV and digital. And so again, it felt like a really good fit. And the woman, the last woman who interviewed me had been head of the Oprah Winfrey network. And it was just so just so nice sort of speaking to this this woman who kind of we we talked about the the landscape in America and the landscape in in England and the, the difficulties and the stuff that we we had to face and overcome and it was just you know she was really excited to have somebody like me on board and I'm really excited to go and work with them so I'm really looking forward to that the real truth of the matter is in terms of people kind of saying Oh, you're doing a bit of everything. You're doing this. You're doing that. Um, mm. You're always you're always busy. It is. It has to be a bit smoke and mirrors. You know the fact that this year we needed to have, or it was felt that there needed to be a kind of black to front day at Channel Four to showcase black talent in front and behind the camera uh, speaks volumes. It's has been really really difficult for me kind of pushing 
further than an exec producer level. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I read nature- your, I read your article on that, by the way, and I thought it was, it was brilliant in terms of, uh, yeah, talking about the, the tokenism aspect. And, and Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the nature of the, the nature of it is that, you know, people like to hire people who look like them and people like to make programs about people who kind of sound sound like them that has always been the case which meant that I never really felt that I could make a leap you know I don't I don't want to be a producer all the time and be in an edit suite at 2am in the morning and then kind of being shouted at <laughs> shouted at by some coked up commissioner about um changing something at the last minute or or, or whatever you know oh, you come on to- mate it's just banter <laughs> you want to move on you want to um <clears throat> You want to you want to do more stuff, and that hasn't been available. So, mm. you know, if there isn't a door there, you have to build a door <laughs> and then open it yourself. So, you know, I try and be as um, visible as I can on platforms where people are going to see stuff and maybe think about, oh, Simon might be good for that. And then I kind of feel that it's sort of my duty not to sit around waiting for something to happen. So if anybody asks me to do something and I think I can do it, I'll say yes. So during the pandemic, during 2020, I was head of video for a startup. I helped a brand company come up with um, an advert for some financial services. I've uh, written or co-written, co-authored with a one of my best friends, a huge diversity and inclusion report that basically was felt like going and doing a dissertation, you know, all the research I had to do for it. It was amazing and just so such a brilliant thing to do, which I never thought I would do. I've been a talking head on various different radio stations. I still review films and podcasts for Gabby Roslin on BBC Radio London. And I ran uh, with my... A quiz partner ran an online quiz for local the local community and raised money for charities throughout the pandemic because I love quizzes I love setting quizzes and I love uh doing all that stuff and it's just kind of keeping me busy yeah. and not all of it pays in fact very little of it very very little of it pays but where the money does come in just keeps me ticking over wait, waiting for the next kind of big opportunity and because you've got so many different strands because it's such a diverse thing that you're doing you're working across so many different strands and you're meeting so many different people you are getting more and more experience and intelligence yeah i mean yeah. i would hate and contacts to... yes completely yeah. Yeah. completely and sometimes kind of i sort of think about people who've been in their jobs for 25, 30 years. I mean, I'd love to talk to kind of Alan Yentob. He's been like creative director at the BBC for about 25 years. Ian Hislop, editor of uh, Private Eye. I know he does other stuff as well. I I wonder what that feels like to be doing the same job for all that time. I don't know whether that's... Um, I'd love to know their experiences, why, why they enjoy doing that over and over again. It's not, it's not for me. But also, mm-hmm. it's not for me because the opportunities have been lesser so i've had to go out and create those opportunities yeah yeah you've had to create your own opportunities and work that makes sense that makes sense okay for someone that's so busy and does so much what do you do outside of work to relax and unwind simon london 
it's got to be friends, you know, really good friends. I touched on the quiz. I love hosting. I've been co-hosting with my friend Richard Foster a pub quiz for, uh, it's got to be about 15 years now. And we're at a stage where we do the local schools um, for their parents' evenings and things like that. And we've done it, we've done some corporates as well. And I just love that. I love I love quizzes. If I could, I'd like to do Pointless. I'd like to do The Chase. I'd like to do Only Connect. <laughs> I'd love to be asked on University Challenge um, when they do the celebrity. You'd be great in that. Famous, but I'm not famous enough. But I I just love all quizzes. So I'm I'm a bit of a I'm a bit quiz mad. Okay. Um, I really really enjoy um my my parents li- live down in uh, Dorset, and obviously it's just my dad there now but I do like getting out and about and walking and walking through the countryside I really find that as I've got older as well I really find that sort of resets me that's you know your podcast is all about balance and I find that for a really active mind like mine which is always thinking about the next thing that I might be able to write or the next thing I might be able to do or whatever that getting out into the outdoors kind of I, I, everybody says, you know, nature is healing. I, I, I really believe that. And I do yeah. like, I do love the countryside and I do like that stillness. I'd like to take up fishing again. As a kid, my dad used to take me fishing and um, just watching Paul Whitehouse and Bob Mortimer's yeah. series, which I think is one of the best, one of the best shows on TV. And, you know, everybody raved about the trip, but this is, this is my trip. This is why yeah, I, yeah, I never okay. got into the trip. I love um, Steve Coogan, but I never really got into the trip. And this to me is like, has some, an authenticity. And I find all that nature that they're showing in the program. It, it's really, it's really good. So I like that. I used to read a hell of a lot, a lot of fiction. Um, but I think that has been, that's been taken over by articles on, articles online. I read a hell of a lot online about, anything and everything American politics. I was kind of got slightly obsessed with Trump and everything that was going on over there. Um, And also our politics here, I really got into an Irish um, writer called Fintan O'Toole. Um, It's interesting finding writers who look at a situation from being the outsider and looking in. And I love kind of trying to find those writers who look at uh, the positions that we're in and can take a, view that's not clouded by being partisan yeah i completely uh i completely get that i mean it's that sort of touches upon i guess what we were talking about earlier in terms of um dissecting content and stories on social media and yes. in a kind of yeah. nu- in a nuanced way uh, yeah. where it's not well this is right and this is wrong <laughs> um talking of of, of reading are oh, I know you don't read so much anymore now but are there any books over over the course of your life that have had uh, a, a major impact on you in in any way yes and and um I know that you asked this question so I've written them down oh um, great one of the first um, the first series of books that I just sort of fell in love with were the just William books oh, yeah. um, Rich Moore Crompton and um just her use of language and vocabulary. I mean, they were children's books, but they kind of had words in like verisimilitude and uh, nemesis and things like this. And I, I kind of really fell in love with the language. My dad said to me, if you're reading Just William, you should read uh, P.G. Woodhouse, 
But of course, you never want to do what your parents recommend. <laughs> and so I came to PG Woodhouse really late. Um, a guy, Ben Farrell, who's um, head of comedy at Objective, he got me into PG Woodhouse. And so I, I love that kind of clever wordplay and comedy there. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird, I think for most black people, uh, from for most for most people, killing to kill a mockingbird will always resonate um, with them, and I I I think both the book and the film profoundly affected me. Vanity Fair, uh, which I had to do for A level, and Bleak House, so William Thackeray and Charles Dickens. I read those books. Those books are which kind of take a look at society and are very satirical I mean absolutely uh blown I was blown away by those books and A level kind of you know you're not supposed to enjoy it's it's good if you enjoy the books that you're doing but you know I'm surprised that I sometimes that I used to go back to those books um Malcolm X when I got to university and I kind of got politicized for the first time really I read Alex Haley's um autobiography of Malcolm X brilliant book that just um you know just really blew me away and obviously i think that a lot of the time he was um kind of he talks about being a mascot and a token and he was kind of fostered and obviously i was adopted and um i saw lots of parallels i i kind of really you know what he was talking about i i understood i really really got into that book and um you know, I I always sort of nod to it and say to my son, "Oh, you should you know you should maybe read that," but I don't want to do what my dad did and <laughs> kind of push it down his throat. Muhammad Ali, I've uh, read pretty much everything about Muhammad Ali, and you probably saw in the poster behind me. We're both born on the seventeenth of January, so I've always had an affinity to him and with him. And again, you know, he he was a kind of. Uh, Sound. I don't think I'm Muhammad Ali before anybody says he thinks he's Muhammad Ali, but he was a charismatic black guy who just through dint of what he did had to move uh, seamlessly in this kind of white environment. Yeah. And so again, I kind of feel I understand that. And you also understand that you, when your behavior is good, the way that you're praised is, is it's always like, haven't you done well? Um, but when your behaviour is bad or just as bad as everybody else that you're working with, it's kind of, he would be like that. And I, I understand that uh, as as well. Then books that are really, books that make me laugh, The Confederacy of Dunces um, by John... Uh, Washick. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's an amazing book that um, uh, I got into late, but I... I've read a, a few times and I, I recommend everybody read that. Well-Remembered Days, which is a, a satirical book by Arthur Matthews, who wrote um, Father Ted with yes. Greg Unahan. Yeah. That book has made me laugh out loud um, so many times. And I've I've bought that book and I think I must have bought that book about four or five times and given it away to people. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, I'm obsessed with. I've read everything about his and actually I wanted to do a quiz based on his show Blink. So I found his email and emailed him back and said to him, do you mind if I try and do this quiz and would you like to help me? And he just emailed back and said, I'm so busy. I can't help you, but good luck with that. And that, that was just a great day getting um, something getting back from him. him. Yeah, he's, yeah. Putting, he's putting in his 10,000 hours. 
Yes, um, definitely, definitely. <laughs> I mean, outli- all the every time I read the next book and those, I mean, like, outliers. I've it's just amazing. But brilliant. the tipping points, yeah, was, was they're, they're, all, they're all classics. Um, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to ask. I mean, there's an incredible, extensive list there. I mean, you've gone above and beyond. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you the final the final question, um, Simon. What does the idea of balance mean to you, or not? The idea of balance to me means about working to live, not living to work. And I know that's possibly a tired, trite cliche, but I think that you should enjoy your work, but at the same time, you should be able to switch off from it and find time to enjoy and appreciate your family and your friends, especially as you don't realize how quickly life moves as you get older. When you're young, everything takes ages. The summer holidays used to last for ages. Do you remember as a kid? Oh, the best. But now, you know, we're kind of nearly at the end of a second year of, uh, of what's been just bonkers in a pandemic, yeah. but it's gone so quickly. And I think that, you know, the idea of balance is perfectly summed up in that um, Ferris Bueller quote. You know, he says... Life goes life- by is pretty... Quickly. Yeah, life moves pretty fast. Life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss, it. miss it. Yeah, yeah, great. And point. so I think that yeah, that's a that's a quote. I, I I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have it on a mug or framed like, hey, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. Yeah. But I would say to people, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I think that's a great um, a great uh, point to. Um, to end on simon where can people keep up to date with your banter and uh and what you're up to well i'm on twitter and instagram at s london uk all one word come and link on linkedin and i'm always happy to kind of help out and give advice if people need it it might take me some time to get back to you but i will do that and um yeah and if you've got kids uh, definitely use my website, kidrated.com, where kids review family days out and attractions in London, um, which is for younger kids and older teenagers. So, yeah. Brilliant. Simon, thanks so much. Um, great catching up with you and um, having, having a bit of bants. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, keep on doing what you're doing. I'll obviously review this episode for Gabby Roslin and tell oh, everybody fantastic. how great it is. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.